Well, hello again, and uh, it's good to be with you this morning. As a kind of by way of introduction, I want to just kind of follow up with uh, what was said earlier about children's ministries, and I want you to know from my heart that I am really excited about um, where God is leading us next. Obviously, we are uh, sad to say goodbye to Hannah, but I'm really excited to see where God leads us this fall and moving forward. Um, so I'm excited to, to jump in uh, a bit more with the kids and, uh, and move forward there. So, and thank you for so many of you who already do that. So I'm, I'm excited and um, sometimes I've, I've shared with you why I do that. Why do we do that? Why do we care about reaching the next generation? Why do we care about passing on the faith to kids and students. And there's a number of reasons for that. Uh, we could do a whole separate message about that. Um, some of you have heard me say before, for example, in the book of Judges, where it talks about the generation of Joshua. So they had the generation of the man who had the best name in the world. And so the generation of Joshua, the generation that died out, and there arose a generation after them that did not know the Lord. It's on each of us as we take the gospel to the next generation, that we proclaim it to the kids and students and families that, uh, that the Lord calls us to do. And so, uh, so thank you to those who do that, and that's why I do it. That's why we do it, is because we want to see kids, students, families come to know the love of Jesus Christ. So why do you serve? You say, well, I don't really. Well, that, everyone serves in some way, in some form. Maybe you serve at work. Why do you do that? Why do you help other people out at work? And you say, well, it's for a paycheck. Okay, well, there's your reason. Why do you serve your kids? Why do you do kind things for them? Why do you help them out? Well, there's probably a number of reasons there, but if we kind of peel it back, probably the most common one you would say is because I love them. And so all of a sudden we see, well, there, there's differences in the ways that we serve at work and the ways that we serve with kids, and hopefully you love your kids more than you love your work, and there's, there's reasons why. So we want to peel back the curtain a little bit this morning and talk about why do we serve. But we also want to talk about what do we do with our lives? See, we're not just interested this morning in getting slots filled for a need that we have in service. We could do that any other way. What we're interested in this morning is looking at what's the foundation, what lies behind Christian service? Why do Christians serve, and what do we do with our lives once Jesus saves us? This is a question that probably many of you are wrestling with right now of what do I do with my life? I know there are some of you who are getting ready to go back to college or go to college for the first time, even some of you this very week. And you're wondering, well, okay, what's next? You're thinking about, well, obviously, college is next, but what comes after? Others of you may have recently graduated from high school or from college, and you're wondering, what's next? What do I do with my life? Others of you I know are thinking about maybe making career transitions, and you're saying, well, what do I do next? And still others of you are thinking about retirement and saying, well, what do I do with that, with all the time that I have now? See, many of us are asking, what do I do with my life? But I wonder if we're really stopping to ask, what do we do as Christians, and why do we do it? Why do we serve? Why do we do these things? That's what we're talking about this morning, of why and what. What lays beneath the surface of serving as Christians? Well, there are some people here at Grace who 
Um, many of you serve, and uh, we ask some of them what they do, wh where they serve, and uh, you'll hear from them some of the reasons why as well. I want you to take a listen to some dear people here at Grace who are serving right now. My name is Rich Foote. I'm Mary Foote. We've been married 47 years this past week, and we have three married children, and we're blessed with seven grandchildren. Uh, we love working with children, and uh, we want to, we have a special talent, and we want to use that talent to uh, share the love of Jesus with the boys and girls that we come in contact with. Presently, we are teaching the four and five-year-olds right here in the Cove. This past week, we were able to help in Vacation Bible School. Rich was the storyteller, and I was the music person, and we had fun making homemade instruments with the children. Other options we've done since we've been here at Grace, we've taught first graders and we've taught third graders. And we also had the opportunity to do mission trips to the Philippines. And while we were there, we did music, storytelling, and feeding stations. And then when we went to the DR, we were asked to share our expertise in teaching the teachers there in the DR how to do some of the different discipline things that needed to be done. And then we were able to work with adults teaching English as a second language and foreigners, and that was really a blessing. And then we finished up working with our MOPS preschoolers while the moms were having their meeting. About three years ago, we got involved in a special program here called uh, the Homebound Ministries. And uh, they paired us up with a, a wonderful lady. Her name is... Uh, Annabelle Robinson, and uh, she, uh, we went to her home to uh, visit with her, and uh, she's 95 years old. Uh, we try to visit her uh, about once a month now. About two and a half years ago, uh, Pastor Allen did a uh, special sermon from uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, and it was uh, the part about uh, one body with uh, many parts. He got to the verse that said, if the foot should say, because I'm not the hand, I do not belong to the body. And then he said, are the foots here? Well, our name just happened to work into his uh, sermon. But Pastor Dan's point was that the church is like a body. It has many parts and they're all working together. And every uh, believer uh, has a talent and has, is gifted and is uh, needed to share. And we all need to work together. I have chosen to serve in Grace Kids and Pure Joy um, out of a part of my heart to love God and love others and to choose to deny myself when we serve, we learn to connect with others and build new relationships with new people we haven't interacted with before. Serving is a reminder of the importance of submitting to God and serving out of humility and not out of vain. Serving ultimately isn't about us. It ultimately should point others to the pure love of Christ. Serving has also shown me grace. I've learned that it's important to serve from a genuine and sincere heart and out of a reverence for God and of a heart to care for others. Through serving, I've learned to see God in new ways, and it has expanded my view on His heart for others. God cares about people, and simple obedience is what God desires from us in our service to Him. 
As we rely on God's strength to serve, uh, we desire all the more to put our faith into practice and to point others to God and his love for the church. Ultimately, Jesus modeled a life of servanthood um, and displayed by showing us the love of God. Jesus also, also modeled to others that greatness is found in servanthood. Um, and lastly, I believe serving can teach us courage to step out into the unknown and begin to build relationships with others we have yet to connect with and that we can continue to get to know through service. All right, well, there goes my sermon. Uh, those three are dear people here at Grace. We're so thankful for them and the ways that they serve and um, serve so faithfully and uh, thankful for the hand and the foot of the church and uh, just the, the many ways in which they, um, they serve so faithfully. So um, why do you serve? You probably can think of areas in which you do, and the question is why? What does it look like? Why do you do what you do? Why do Christians serve? What do they do with their lives once Jesus saves us? The main point this morning that we'll spend in the rest of the message unpacking and defending and arguing and showing how it's true, the main point is this. The call to serve is the call to Christ-like love. The call to serve is the call to Christ-like love. This is what our service should look like. It helps us see both why we serve, because Christ loved and served us, and it helps us see how we serve. We follow the example of Christ. And it sees, helps us see what we are to do with our lives, and that is we love Christ and love others. What we see first, we have to understand how Christ has served and loved us. The first thing we see is that Christ serves us. He serves us. Now, when I say that, there's probably a couple of different reactions. Some of you recoil at that kind of language because you think it borders on blasphemy to suggest that God actually serves us. You see yourself as a servant of Christ, not the other way around. Like Pastor Dan talked about last week, Paul identifies as a servant of Christ. He's one who, who just rows his oar at the beckoning of the captain of the ship. And you are correct in saying that. Others of you, though, think that this statement is about as obvious as it gets, because even if you don't admit it, you believe that God exists to serve you, to make your life better. If you think about uh, Iron Man, he's the hero, but Jarvis is the one who's making everything kind of work and make sure it all flows well. Well, sometimes we can think of our relationship with God like that. We think, well, I'm the hero, but God's the one who's making sure everything's working and flowing well to make sure I'm successful. Now, both of these reactions actually assume the same thing. They both assume this very important thing. They both assume that the one who is being served is actually the one who is greater. They both assume the one who is being served is the one who is greater. So then, if you assume that God exists to serve you, then you're assuming that the universe revolves around you. But if you recoil at the language of God serving you, you're assuming that by serving you, God is actually making you the center of the universe. And we know that's not true. We know that God does not exist for us. We exist for him. God's central purpose is not to serve us. Our central purpose is to serve him. But this God also says that the one who is greatest in the kingdom is the one who serves most greatly. 
And so he models it by serving us most greatly because he is himself the most great being in the universe. And in so doing, he teaches us a very important lesson about serving, that we should not assume that being served implies your greatness any more than we should assume that serving implies your weakness. Actually, serving demonstrates strength, humility, confidence. Jesus told his disciples, you know that there are those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ came not to be served, but to serve. Came not to be served, but to serve. The Son of Man, Jesus says. That's, that's himself. He's using his favorite term for himself. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And so he's teaching us then that the world's power structure is not the same thing as the power structure in the kingdom of God. True spiritual leadership, such as should be demonstrated in the church of all places, is not demonstrated by some domineering leader who is willing to run over anyone and everyone who doesn't get on the bus, but is demonstrated instead by someone who serves out of love for other people. That's what Jesus says is true spiritual leadership in the kingdom of God, and our Lord Jesus modeled it for us. See, they would have expected the Messiah to ride in triumphantly and never have to work a day in his life, but he comes and says, no, I came to serve you. Philippians 2 talks about it and says that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And his emptying himself does not mean that he is giving up his deity. It's not an emptying by subtraction. It's an emptying by addition. His emptying is him adding to himself a human nature, that he's taking the form of a servant, which means then that though human beings are made to serve God, God took human flesh to serve us. And he did so by laying down his life. Christ served us by laying down his life. The way he most ultimately served was by dying. If we continue on in Philippians 2, it says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. His humble service led him to the cross. Or think back to those verses we just read a few moments ago where Jesus is talking about service and greatness. And he says, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. That's what we just looked at. And to give his life as a ransom for many. The way that he served was by dying for many people, for his chosen people, to bring them to God. And in so doing, he shows us what it looks like to love those who hate you. Jesus said elsewhere, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And we come to realize that this is the exact way that God loves us, because we are the ungrateful and the evil. 
We are those sinners in view. We are the ones who cannot do anything good. We cannot pay God back. We cannot uh, give him anything in return. But Jesus took the names of sinners to the cross and died for them that he might bring them to himself and make them like himself. And the reason we spend time here, the reason we, 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 we start the sermon here is because what we come to realize is that what we believe about uh, how we are saved has a fundamental way, it, it shapes the way that we treat other people. If you believe that you just kind of pulled yourself up by your bootstraps and you kind of earned and merited God's favor, then it will lead to you thinking you're a little bit better than other people are. That somehow you were able to curry God's favor, and so what sets you apart is yourself. Ray Ortland just uh, this week posted on social media, these two things always go together, trusting in our own righteousness and treating others with contempt. Because you think that, we're, that you're actually better than they are if you think that it's your righteousness that earns your standing with God. But when we understand the gospel, we understand that we are actually the enemies of God. We are the ones who are wrong. We are the ones with an infinite debt that we could never repay. And then all of a sudden, that begins eating away at our own self-righteousness. It begins eating away at our own self-justification. And it makes us humble enough to see other people as true image bearers of the God of the universe, as people who are deserving of love and respect. And we treat them as such by serving them because we recognize that Christ loved us when we were yet enemies and served us. See, Christ died for his enemies, which is you and I. And so then we are called to a similar kind of love that leverages our lives for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ and loving other people. And this kind of love is only possible by first acknowledging our dire need for a Savior and submitting our lives to him. And as we come to him and we, we, we trust in his work for us, then we are transformed to be more and more like him, which is why we talk about this being a Christ-like love. This has to be a love that is like Christ and He's doing that work in our hearts, those of us who believe in him and have the spirit of God living in us. And the way that we treat others is often one of the key indicators of how we've understood Christ's love to us. He shows us love and he models love for us and he, in many ways, continues to serve us still today. He's seated on his heavenly throne and the Bible tells us that Christ Jesus is the one who died, who more than that, was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So he is still serving us today by interceding for us, which means that when we sin or when some accusation or guilt comes before us, Jesus steps in and says, no, 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 I got it. I got them covered. I got her covered. They're mine. He's interceding for us even today, and that is one of the ways in which he strengthens us to serve, but there are many others, because what we see is that Christ not only models it and shows it and empowers it for us by serving us, but he also strengthens us in our service. He strengthens us to serve. We keep reading in Romans, and it says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? And the answer is no. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you are in Christ, there is nothing that can separate you from him. 
So what are we afraid of in serving? For some of us, maybe it's a fear of rejection. We don't want to step out in service because we don't know what these people are going to think about the message of the gospel, and we don't want to risk rejection. But in Christ, you are accepted by God, and you will never be rejected by him. Maybe for others of us, it's pride. Uh, we're not really sure what people would think about us, and we think far too much about what they would think of us. But the Bible tells us that in Christ, you know that you are loved by God forever and that nothing will change that. Or maybe for others of us, it's the fear of failing. And granted, there's nowhere that says you're going to succeed in everything that you do, but so what if it doesn't work out? What then? The Bible says that no amount of failure, there is nothing that can happen that will cause God to stop loving you. Now, I can resonate with each of those three, and probably you can as well. And so what the point is that the more we come to see how Christ serves us, the more we come to see how he strengthens us in this, the more emboldened we will be then to serve like him, the more we come to see why we serve at all. Paul says in 1 Timothy, this is a glorious passage, he says this, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. See, Paul here is a model. Paul is overwhelmed at the grace of God shown to him. Because Paul knows, I'm a sinner. He says, I'm the foremost of sinners. In other words, I'm the biggest sinner there is. It's a, it's a competition, and Paul's saying, I got you beat. And deep down, you and I know we are sinners as well. But in some ways, this is actually a deeply comforting truth. For as Martin Luther famously said, when Satan tells me I am a sinner, he comforts me immeasurably since Christ died for sinners. And he died for sinners like you and I to bring us to himself. And so note that Paul is amazed and thankful that the Lord, he says, has appointed me to his service, even a former blasphemer and persecutor like Paul. Paul was going around killing Christians and blaspheming the name of God, and God says, Paul, I'm going to appoint you to my service. Paul doesn't get over that. He is so overwhelmed with thankfulness and gratitude at that. See, no matter what your past, when you encounter the life-changing grace of Jesus, you are not too far gone to be useful in the kingdom of God. You might say, well, what do I possibly have to offer? Well, Dan last week suggested a number of things that every believer has to offer, and it's compassion and contentment and hope and grace. And Paul says here that the reason God saved me was so that you and I would know we are not too far gone from the grace of Jesus. 
Paul says, look at my life. Look at, my, look at how much I've sinned. I'm the, I'm the biggest sinner there is. And the reason God saved me was to show you you're not too far gone. And that's what every believer has to offer to a watching and wondering world is that we, we stand there. They're, they're wondering, are you just going to condemn me and my sin? Or are you going to stand there and say, I'm a sinner too. And the reason God saved me was to show you that you are not too far gone from his grace. Repent and believe and you will find life in Christ. That's what we have to offer the world. We have to offer Christ. And he is the one whom everyone most desperately needs. And he strengthens us and emboldens us in this service to step out in faith, trusting him. There are many ways in which he does so, but we'll just briefly mention a few. First of all, he sees you. Christ sees you. It can grow discouraging when you are serving and serving some more and continuing on serving and it seems no one really notices. I'm not meaning in, in a prideful way, though that's certainly part of it, but I'm meaning you genuinely want to serve the Lord, you want to have an impact, and yet day after day, week after week, year after year, you labor and you think, well, no one's really seeing this, no one's noticing it, is it making any impact at all? But God sees you. Hebrews tells us, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. The larger theme here in Hebrews is a warning against falling away, to persevere. And I think one of the ways in which maybe we can persevere is that we know that God sees us, which is of immense comfort and encouragement for those of you who are laboring diligently in areas where you don't get a whole lot of public recognition, where it doesn't lead to a bunch of praise and applause, where it doesn't seem to make much of a noticeable impact right away, but you trust, knowing it's making an eternal impact, and so you persevere because you know God sees me. This is also, by the way, a warning to those who do receive praise and applause because it means that God knows the motives of our heart. We can maybe fool people, we cannot fool God. He knows whether we're in it for our own praise and glory or his praise and glory. So this is both a warning to those who do receive the applause and recognition and an encouragement to those who do not that God sees and he will reward you for your efforts in due time. But he not only sees you, but he also gives you gifts to use. He gifts you to serve him. Now, this will actually be the focus of next week's sermon, so we'll only just briefly touch on it here. But each one of us are given different gifts to build up the body of Christ, all to the glory of God. You, as a believer, have been given gifts, so don't say, well, I got nothing to offer. He's given gifts to you. And, and take a look at the people sitting around you right now. Your gifts are to be used to serve them. Not for yourself, for them. To build them up, to love them. Every single person who follows Christ has been given gifts that are to be used in, in service of the church as we serve Christ. Now, if you're wondering, well, what are my gifts? Well, talk to a friend or a pastor. Um, get involved in serving somewhere. Or, shameless plug, come back next week and we'll talk more about it. So no one should feel ignored or overlooked because God sees you, and no one should feel like you don't have anything to offer because God gives you gifts to use in service. But so too should no one feel hopeless or like this is a losing effort because Christ guarantees his mission. He is the one who guarantees that this will happen. 
it is popular nowadays to talk about some threats to the gospel. That language is popular. And there are certainly some things we should talk about, about threats that might hinder people from coming to an understanding of the gospel or something like that. But inherently in the language, a threat to the gospel is impossible because the gospel is the proclamation of good news that Jesus Christ has triumphed over the grave. It is a declaration of victory, one, that nothing in the past, nothing now, or nothing in the future can snuff out. That the gospel, there is nothing that can threaten it because Jesus says, I'm the one who's going to build my church, and nothing can stop that. Our future as a church is as certain as the resurrected Christ. Amen. That's why the author of Hebrews says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Or why Jesus says so definitively to Peter that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Three things to notice from that verse. First, notice who's doing the building. Jesus says, I will build my church. It's Jesus doing the building, not you and I. There's not a single one of us who is given the gift, the mission of building the church. Sometimes you think, well, that's the spiritual gift given to pastors. No, it's not. Jesus is the one who is building his church. It means that the results are up to God, not up to us. Sometimes we think, well, if I could just do things just the right way, and if I could just maneuver it like this, well, then, then we're going to keep these people from going. Then we're going to draw these people in, and then we're going to reach a certain group of a certain demographic. And there might be good conversations to have in these things, and there are good labors and efforts, but we have to understand that at the end of the day, the results are up to God, not up to us. He calls us to faithfulness and says, trust me with the fruit. I think there are sometimes when we in the church want to just get our hands on things and say, well, well, I can kind of control this. I can do this. And Jesus steps in and very kindly yet firmly says, no, no, no. This is my church. I'm building it. Trust me. Do what I've called you to do and trust me to bring the fruit that I want to see. It does not rest upon you or I, but on God to build his church. And that is the most comforting news we could imagine because he will see it through to completion. But note too, he says, I will build my church. These people, this church belongs to him, not us. Sometimes we talk about the church as the body of Christ. Now you wouldn't go up to someone and punch him in the arm and say, what's the big deal? It's just your arm. Like, no, no, that's still my body. And sometimes we strike out against someone in the church. Jesus would have every right to look at us and say, what are you doing to my body? Or we talk about the church as the bride of Christ. And quite frankly, there are some things that we say or do to people that we would never say or do to the bride of a friend as they approach their wedding day. And Jesus wants, he, could, he would just as easily look at us and say, what are you doing to my bride? Again, I want you to look around at the people sitting around you right now. And I want you to realize that these people are more precious to Christ than you could ever possibly imagine. He loves them far more than you could ever know. That's true of you, and that's true of the others sitting around you. And so this should shape our interactions that we have with other believers. Because this is Christ's church, not ours. So he says, I will build my church. And he says, the gates of hell will not even stand against it. Satan and the demonic realm will not prevail over the church. Nothing can snuff out the growth of the church. Nothing can stop the spread of the gospel. 
Now, sometimes the results, the, the mission, will not look exactly like we expected it would or like we hoped it would, but the results are in God's hands, and so we are simply stewards of the grace that he has given to us. And this comes out very clearly in one instance in the Great Commission. Many of you know the command, but I want, as I read this, notice how it's bookended by two comforting promises. Right? So we know the command. Look at the bookends here. And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We talked a lot about that command, as we should, but notice the bookends that give us strength and empowerment to actually do it. He says, first of all, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus. Think of uh, in your office, your workplace, the little kids running around and doing all sorts of stuff, and you know, a security guard might go up and say, well, what are you doing here? And the kid says, well, my dad's the CEO, and he said I could be here. We have the authority of the king of the universe to go into all the nations and proclaim the gospel. But we also have his presence with us. He says, I will be with you always to the end of the age. There is nowhere that you or I will ever go that will be apart from the presence of Christ. And his presence is with believers in a particular way by his spirit who indwells each one of us. He is always with us. We are never alone. And so in light of all of this, in light of how our service is not overlooked in the kingdom of God, how we each have been given gifts that are to be used to serve one another, and how the results are ultimately up to God, which makes them most certain, then we can and do serve with the utmost trust and confidence, knowing that God is building his church. We are called to faithfully follow him and trust him in this. And as we do, he sends us to serve. Christ sends us to serve. We've looked at how Christ serves us. We've looked at how he strengthens us for service. And now we'll look at how he calls us and sends us to serve. So I invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. In this book, Peter is, uh, is trying to strengthen believers. There's persecution coming. There's opposition coming. He's trying to strengthen them as they prepare to face that. And in 1 Peter, it follows the model that many New Testament letters follow. It's the same model this sermon has followed, and it's this. You look first at Christ. You look at who he is. You look at what he has done, and only in light of that then do we live it out. We don't flip those around. The New Testament witness is you look at Christ, you see what he's done, you see the gospel, and then we live in light of it. And that's what Peter's been doing. And so then we come to 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. We read this. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. 
Amen. He begins by saying, the end of all things is at hand, and you're praying that's true of this sermon. That means Christ could return at any point. We are living in the last days, just like Peter and the apostles were, and many of you realize this, because you've said things to me like, well, I I can't say for sure, but it, it certainly seems like Jesus is coming again soon. Yes, it does. But the important thing is not that we know exactly when he is coming back, but what we are to be doing in the meantime. And that's what Peter is telling us here. If we really believe that he's coming back soon, if we really believe that, it is not a call to retreat, but a call to run toward and serve and love people. And that's why Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, so in light of that, because of that, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So he's telling us, this is how you are to live. If you believe the end is near, this is how you are to live in response to that. Be self-controlled, not given over to sin, but taking control of our actions and our thoughts. Be sober-minded, not being swept away by every movement of the culture or by subscribing to every conspiracy or by always agreeing with every whim that people have to offer, but thinking through things with sober judgment. He says, this is all for the sake of your prayers. In other words, Peter is saying that if you are not self-controlled and you are not sober-minded, your prayer life will suffer. But we are to be people committed to prayer. He says, keep loving one another earnestly, meaning genuinely and sincerely stemming from a pure and right heart, something that we are seriously committed to doing. And it's a love that's even extended toward those who sin against us, which is the very kind of love that Christ has toward us. And he says, show hospitality. That means be welcoming and inviting people into your life, not as a chore, but out of love. And so if we were to sum all this up, I would say it like this. The way we are to, be, to live is to be committed to prayer and committed to love. And that is also at the heart of all Christian service. Be committed to prayer and be committed to love. If our service does not include these two very important dynamics and it is not truly and ultimately Christian service that we are doing, we've got to be people of prayer and we've got to be people of love. In that magnificent chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, it's very poetic and Paul is saying, if you have all these great things and do all these great things and have all these great gifts and you don't have love, he wants to look at you and say, if you're doing all that, what's the point? Because you've missed it entirely. So it may never be said of us here at Grace, what was said at the church in Ephesus in Revelation, that though they were zealous to discern between right and wrong, they had lost their true love, their first love. Love must be at the root of all of our service because love was at the root of Christ's service to us. And I think this is actually what was on Peter's mind as well because look at where he goes next. After this, he says, as each has received a gift, so he's talking about serving, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter says, your gifts are to be used to serve one another. He says, we've all been given it. As each one has received a gift, what are we to do? Use that to serve one another. 
serve the church, serve the people of God as good stewards of God's varied grace. What is it? How do we serve? We steward the grace God has given us. So if you speak, you must speak the words of God. If you serve, and this is crucially important, notice, you serve by the strength that God supplies. We do not serve in our own strength. We do not try to handle this on our own. We serve in the strength of God, the strength that he supplies to us. And so because of this, then in all this, in everything, God is glorified through Jesus Christ, and we are reminded again that to him belongs all glory and dominion forever and ever. He is the one who is sovereign over it. He is the one who is in control. He is the one who is building this thing, and he is the one who deserves all praise and glory for it, not us. So in other words, here's the deal. We see the end is near, and it should drive us to pray and to love, which is at the very essence of Christian service. And as we serve, we use our gifts for the good of other people. We stay true to God's word, and we serve in God's strength rather than in our own. And the only way we can truly serve in God's strength is when we are filled with his spirit, when we are refreshed by his word, and when we know him in prayer, and when we see and love other people the way that God sees and loves them in the way that Christ has seen and loved us. So as we said earlier, the call to serve is a call to Christ-like love. It's a call to be like Jesus. We've seen the way he's loved and he's served us. We've seen the way he continues to do that, even still. And all of this is rooted in, grounded on, and empowered by the glorious gospel realities of the work of Jesus Christ. So we who are redeemed by Christ are being made into his image, which includes in the way that we serve. We should be like him and loving like him. This is a call to those of us here at Grace to serve, to, to, to leverage our lives for the sake of the gospel and in love for other people. There are plenty of avenues and opportunities to do this, and the simplest suggestion I have is just get involved somewhere. Many of you already are, and I'm so thankful for that. But, but here's the reality. The way that we as Christians serve is fundamentally distinct because we serve with Christ-like love because of how Christ has saved us and served us with his love to us. And so the call to serve then is a call to really follow him and be like him and show that kind of love to other people around us. And so you ask, well, why do we serve? Ultimately, we love because Christ first loved us. We serve because Christ first served us. And so that's what I want to invite you into, to join us in doing by loving God and by loving others, by revealing the life-giving grace of Jesus that he has shown to us. May we, in turn, show that to other people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, your amazing love and grace shown to us. We don't deserve it. We cannot earn it. Can't even fathom it. We, we, there's nothing we can do to merit it. And yet you so graciously lavished it upon us. You love us while we were yet sinners. It's an amazing thing. And Father, I pray that we would be gripped more and more right now today by the love that you have shown for us in Christ. And I pray that as we behold Christ, as we love him more, as we love you more, as we, as we see these things, that, that you would... You would grow us to be more like Jesus, to love more like Jesus, 
that you would grow in us a deeper love for you and a deeper love for others that, that uh, it affects everything that we do, that we'd be people committed to prayer and committed to love, that we'd be using the gifts that you have given us to serve your people here, but that we would, in humble trust, lay ourselves before your feet and say, I am not God. I am not the one building this thing. And that we would trust you. So we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are building your church and that nothing can stand against it. And we thank you for your grace and bringing us into it that we might know you and love you both now and forever. And so we pray all these things in your name. Amen.